0: Hi, 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 everyone. Anthony Fantano here, internet's busiest music nerd. Hope you're doing well. And it is time for another edition of the Needle Drop podcast, where we go through a series of reviews and segments from the Needle Drop channel and Fantano channels that were great this week, that were worth compiling into our weekly review roundup podcast. In this episode, I'm going to be talking about the latest records from Georgia rapper and singer Gunna. Uh, Drip or Drown 2 is his latest release. I, I may or may not be too crazy about this one. We'll see. Also, uh, the the great Lil Pump has a brand new record out. Harvard Dropout is finally here. The wait is over. Uh, It's bangers on bangers, but uh, my my opinion, given my enjoyment of his last self-titled project, may surprise you. We are also going to be talking about the latest record from Migos' member Offset. He goes off into a kind of personal solo effort that is surprisingly decent. I'm also going to be talking up the latest compilation of tracks from Spazcore Outfit CU Space Cowboy, and we are going to round it off with a, a really great collection of ambient tracks hailing from Japan from the 1980s uh, Konkyo Ongaku which uh, again, really great environmental music, new age and ambient compilation, super colorful and wonderful. Uh, definitely one of my favorite releases of the year so far. We're also gonna hit you with a special additional segment of Let's Argue, a question that did not make the episode this week, so exclusive to this podcast, and a bit of a rant about a genre of music that I used to dislike when I was younger, in my adolescence, in my teenage years, uh, but I eventually came to, to see the light. And uh, and that is going to be it for this episode. So strap in, get ready, here we go! Bam. <sighs> and it is time for a review of the new Gunna project, Drip. Or Drown, too. This is the latest full-length album from Georgia rapper and singer Gunna, who of course is featured on Young Thug's Young Stoner Life Records. And Gunna, if you have not been paying attention, has been having a pretty big past couple of years with the Thugger Cosign, his breakout Drip Season 3 tape, and the very viral Drip Harder project he put out with Little Baby last year. However, with tuning in to nearly every major Gunna feature and single and project that has dropped over over the last year or so. I'm really just kind of confused. As to what his appeal is in fact I would say I struggle with seeing that appeal and I like and listen to and review a lot of trap rap and even when I'm not crazy about a particular artist like a Kodak black for example I can at least see what he brings to the table or what he does that might appeal to other people but with gunna consistently I just see his tunes as forgettable the beats he picks are super average easily he has one of the least distinct voices in rap music right now If you had a gun to my head and forced me to pick him out of a lineup, that would be my death. His flows aren't anything special in the grander scheme of the genre, and most of what he does is painfully derivative of the artist who helped put him on in the first place. I just see his whole existence as redundant. Will it be that way down the road? I don't know. Artists always change and grow and expand and try different things. But as of right now, that's pretty much how I see it. And keep in mind, these are all of the feelings I already had going into listening to this new album, and unfortunately I can't say Dripper Drown 2 has really changed my mind. The one thing I can give this album is that for the first leg, it's got a consistently wavy and psychedelic vibe coming off of the instrumentals, and it seems like Gunna has a pretty focused aesthetic in mind. It is very watery. A lot of the instrumentals give you the sensation of being submerged in the ocean and you're slowly falling into this wet, Salty Abyss. The vocals may not be anything to write home about, but Gunna at least doesn't get in the way of great instrumentals like on the track Outstanding, which for all intents and purposes do kind of sell the song. That is enough to make the first leg of this album, for the most part, pretty relaxing and listenable. And keep in mind, I'm just saying this section of the album is listenable. It's not mind-blowing or anything like that. But it only takes till about the little baby feature on this album for Not only this record to take a nosedive, but for Gunna to completely lose sight of this aquatic vibe he's drummed up. And then he just essentially transitions into mega-formulaic autotune trap rap with no charisma no passion no soul no nothing It's so lifeless it's so mind-numbing it's so devoid of anything interesting or memorable pretty much just like the drip harder project but just with one of the two voices that that album contained lyrically i didn't go into this album expecting that much but a lot of the time it seems like gunna is trying as hard as he can to do as little as possible without seeming like he's doing nothing. I don't mind minimal trap tracks with maybe a funny or an odd or an outlandish delivery, that's exactly why I enjoy Playboy Cardi's Die Lit. Drip or Drown in a lot of ways is essentially that, but you have to subtract the creative and alternative production, the character, the flavor, and also the memorability. But unfortunately, Cardi can't even save the track that he appears on on this thing. So yeah, eventually on this album, the lyrics devolve into total drivel, look at the song, speed it up. Eventually, the the beats fall off as well, like the nasty, delayed, cyclical, lo-fi guitars on the track Big Shot, which are not very listenable at all, or the bland country trap fusion on the track On A Mountain, which sounds pretty much like a ripoff of exactly what Young Thug did on Beautiful Thugger Girls, yet another example of Gunna living in Thugger's shadow. Not to mention that he is overshadowed by Young Thug on the track that Thug appears on, because vocally Gunna mimics Thugger, obviously, and yet his singing pales in comparison in every conceivable way. Also, the beat on the track Who You Foolin' is so plain and basic that it's almost insulting. The hi hats don't even sound EQ'd or mixed into the instrumental. It's like the producers on this thing gave up at a certain point, too. This album pretty much feels like nearly everyone involved just phoning it in as much as possible, which is unfortunate because this record is probably going to get a lot of play, a lot of exposure, a lot of attention, and I would like to think that anybody involved with a record with this much exposure would do everything they can to sound as great as possible in this moment where they are most likely going to be given access to a piece of the limelight for a very short amount of time. Even artists who make classic records and are incredibly talented don't maintain their peak of popularity forever. And given that, what hopes does this record, or gonna, have? Because it sounds like he's really not trying at all. And just doing the barest of minimums to fit snugly into a very trendy sound at this moment. I'm feeling a light two on this thing. Transition Transition. into into the next review. And it is time for a review of the new Little Pump album Harvard Dropout. This is the newest album from Florida rapper Gazi Garcia, aka Little Pump, who has been keeping us waiting for a pretty long year to hear this record that he has been teasing for quite a while. To the point where the meme this album's title is based off of has kind of grown stale at this point. But still, I am pretty excited to hear new material from Pump. Mostly because I was looking forward to hearing the next phase of evolution from him after his 2017 self-titled project which I still get flack for enjoying to this day, mostly because it's dumb pill-popping trap rap with loud beats and super basic flows. Is it flawed? Yes. And is it incredibly stupid? Yes. But this record has a raw, messy, wild, out of control attitude that I I just can't get enough of. The over the top energy this project brought to the table went mostly unmatched in 2017. So again, I enjoyed that 2017 record and given that little pump doesn't exactly strike me as the type to overthink anything, I assumed going into his next record he'd pretty much maintain everything that made him appealing to begin with. If it's not broken, don't fix it. But unfortunately that's just not really the case and uh, Harvard Dropout, kind of stinks. Mostly for the exact reasons I feared after hearing one of the teaser tracks to this record, Racks on Racks. It was too slick, too well produced, too clean. It seemed like uh, Pump was putting a little bit too much effort into it. In the grander scheme of things, Dropout isn't as much of a fumble as other new rappers have had transitioning into the mainstream and into a bigger budget and a major label deal, like Little Yachty with his awful Teenage Emotions record. But to a degree, Harvard Dropout still feels feels like an example of that, with the much cleaner presentation stripping away the rough and authentic appeal of an amateur who somehow hit it big. The beats on this thing are more pristine and slightly toned down in terms of bass and distortion and aggression. I wouldn't exactly call this record mellow, but the bangers on this thing are kind of mild. And all the tracks on this thing that feature super stripped back skeletal beats, those aren't really doing much for pump style either. I hate to emphasize the quality of the production so much in this review, but the thing is half the time the beat is carrying Lil Pump. And if the beats aren't great, if they don't have an explosive energy to them, there's almost no reason to listen. There are maybe a handful of tracks on this thing where Pump is being his usual outlandish self like a nuh-uh and (laughs) vroom-vroom-vroom and uh off-white, off-white. But these songs are few and far between on the album and not enough to keep the entire record afloat. Also, what's with the numerous tracks on this thing where Pump is... Kind of rapping well and even a bit faster than usual, except he's not really that great at it and sounding slick and rapping fast is not really a part of Lil Pump's appeal. I would much rather hear him on a record sounding young and exuberant and funny and weird, saying something totally absurd or something with a lot of attitude, maybe even nihilistic, but sounding skillful and sounding sly, at least for me, those are words that just don't really compute when it comes to Lil Pump. There are numerous tracks on this thing where Pump, in my opinion, is just trying way too hard to sound put together. On Dropout, on Ion, Racks on Racks, also Drug Addicts, which despite its title sounds like one of the most sober songs on the entire record. There are a couple of moments here where I think the increased budget and cleanliness actually improves Little Pump's formula, like on the track Multimillion Ugh, featuring Little Uzi and uh, also of course, uh, the, the song that is titled after his flagship catchphrase, ESCUDA! Those tracks are very catchy and have an incredibly high impact. But, honestly, a majority of this album is either just straight obnoxious or painfully forgettable. Totally failing to recreate that same part brain dead, part-aggressive thrill of many tracks off the debut. Honestly, there's not a single song on this record that goes as hard as D. Rose or even Boss. Walk in the trap like a boss, ugh! And that's just facts. I think the closest this album comes to creating that same energy is the very blown-out Too Much Ice. But even that pales in comparison, and the Quavo feature on that thing is incredibly average. The song Be Like Me has one of the worst Little Wayne features he's done in a while. Also pumps lyrics on this track. I just cannot stand. They're just really conceited and pretentious. It's like the most annoying flex of all time because anybody who has a few brain cells to rub together really doesn't want to be Little Pump. I mean, I like a lot of your music and I like that you're doing your thing and, and I like your existence but I, I, I have no interest in switching places. And I think that's the case for a lot of people. The song Stripper Name is a total mess. Totally annoying hook also features one of the worst instrumentals on the entire thing based mostly around this very um, uh, stale vocal sample. Again, it's another example of a very minimal instrumental not doing much for Pump in his style. The song "Hoodat" is basically a pointless ending to this entire record. I wish that Pump just sort of left this thing off on a high note with a skedet. The song Butterfly Doors, the flows on that track just feel like a Migos ripoff. And I love it with Kanye. I'm actually very happy that this song landed on this album instead of a Kanye album. Last year, I thought the music video and a lot of the memes branching off of the song were pretty cool, but just by itself, listening to it on an album, yeah, it's kind of annoying, not really that good, and I would be utterly embarrassed to be blasting this song in any public place. All in all, this is just a supremely underwhelming album from Pump. Where are the bangers? Where's the excitement? It's not here. And it's not even that Pump can't rap well, or that his lyrics are dumb, and blah 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 blah. He's a mumble rapper. His bars aren't meaningful, they're not substantive. He's not an experimental, lyrical miracle, spherical miracle. If those are your problems with Pump, you've never liked Pump, and why do you even have any interest in this album? The problem now is that he's just gotten boring, he's effectively painted himself into a corner, and has kind of run out of ideas and has no choice left but to just make his music sound slicker and more expensive and surely that's going to appeal to some people but to anyone who enjoyed the debut tape for its raw energy and almost punkish attitude on harvard dropout yeah that's completely gone i'm feeling a light too decent four on this thing transition Transition into into the next review And it is time for a review of the new Offset record, Father of Four. This is the debut full length solo album of Cardi B's Bay, one third of the Atlanta rap trio Migos. Father of Four. Offset. Over the past year or so the Atlanta trio has been cashing out on their popularity by doing some extracurricular records with collaborative projects like Travis Scott's and Quavo's Huncho Jack, Jack Huncho. Also the surprisingly decent Without Warning with 21 Savage and Offset himself, a very dark and gritty collection of low-key trap bangers all produced by Metro Boomin. Last year Takeoff himself dropped his own incredibly rushed solo album that not many people took to, I can barely even remember it at this point. Then came Quavo's Quavo Huncho, which was star-studded and pretty well produced, but Quavo himself demanded the least attention across the entire LP. His lyrics, his bars were pretty forgettable, and he took a bunch of weird risks on tracks and sounds that didn't really complement his style. And now we have Father of Four, which miraculously is the best of the trio's solo efforts, at least in this first round of them anyway, because maybe there'll be more in the future. And Father of Four isn't the best of the Migos solo records so far, just by virtue of not being total trash. It's actually a pretty mellow, somewhat consistent, and personal album. A record that kind of allows you to view Offset outside of the context of Migos entirely. I'm actually pretty surprised how listenable this album came out, especially given public perception of Migos in the past as far as who the best member of the group was. Going back to 2016 when I asked thousands of my Twitter followers who the Beyonce of Migos was, uh, far and away the choice was Quavo. And it's kind of easy to see why that may be the choice for many. On a good Migos single, Quavo's voice usually stands out the most, has the most character. He's just got this really distinct, kind of nasally, kind of raspy voice that fits in a range that just pops in the mix. And to be honest, Offset's voice is usually what sticks out the least in Amigos song, especially since Takeoff's vocals are usually the deepest, raspiest, and heaviest. Given all of this, it's kind of weird to realize that it's Offset who all this time had the most solo potential. All of these comparisons are relative, though, because is having the most solo potential within Migos translate to having enough solo potential to sustain a long-term solo career? Most likely, no. But I guess this record does serve as final confirmation that Migos truly are bigger than the sum of their parts. Because listening to even the best of the solo albums so far, it still kinda feels like you're listening to Migos in a diminished capacity. Still, it does seem like Offset put the most heart and forethought and effort into this record, going into his relationship with Cardi, his personal connections or lack thereof with his own kids, dropping an occasional bar about racial injustice or societal ills, his family, his past, his upbringing. There are tracks on this thing like the intro featuring Big Rube, definitely getting some big outcast vibes off of this one, where Offset seems to be buried. His soul a little bit, honestly. He's also rapping in a somewhat different delivery than we are used to. Sure, at the very start of his performance on the song, he does sound a little like Travis Scott, but when he does gain his bearings, his voice doesn't have the usual put-on that you hear when he appears on Amigo's track. It just sounds like he's not trying to be anything other than himself. The moments on this record where Offset tries to go deeper and more substantive, they are admirable. Not just the opening track, but also the closing track, the song How Did I Get Here featuring J. Cole, also the track where Offset says, Think about my history, back of the bus, fought for the rights, but we still killed us. For Offset, it's a pretty nice change of pace. Definitely highlights on this record, but in the grander scheme of things, Do these tracks blow me away? Not necessarily. A lot of the societal observations Offset makes on tracks like these. They're kind of surface, very general. It's not like he's really turning a new leaf or anything. And it doesn't take long on this record for Offset to start dropping tracks that essentially just sound like Migos songs but with just him and maybe with a bit more reverb and instrumentals that take on a more mystical angle. Tats on My Face, Made Men, tracks that again sound like a typical Migos song but with the dramatic atmosphere of ASAP Ferg's Trap Lord. I don't think the record picks up again until the song North Star, where CeeLo Green's guest vocals really steal the show. They are one of the most gorgeous highlights on the entire record. The production on this track is actually pretty stunning too. They both do a great job of enhancing the drama of Offset's Very Lonely and Paranoid Bars, which given the pretty underwhelming delivery he has throughout most of this record, they are in need of enhancing. There are some spots like After Dark where Offset's voice gets a bit bolder and more authoritative. His opening verse on this cut is relatively poetic, like he almost knows he's saying something of a bit more substance here, something that he might have really worked on. That's definitely a highlight and we have another track that has been very talked about from this record, Don't Lose Me, which is essentially Offset's public apology to Cardi about not being a good husband, being unfaithful, and honestly, it's, it's no 444. The lyrics of the track feel more general than confessional, but it does sound like the instrumental samples a cricket, and that's kind of weird, but... Okay? There are also a lot of big features on the back end of this record that I hoped would pick up the momentum of the album, but many of them don't. Legacy with Travis Scott and 21 Savage should have been amazing, really should have been a blockbuster of a track, but is more of a dud, mostly because it doesn't really seem like there's much rhyme or reason as to how the song features its guests. Sure, the instrumental is kind of pretty, but Offset and Travis constantly trading places and bars in the first leg of the song really does no justice for either of them. It's kind of like they just cancel each other out. Meanwhile, 21 Savage appears with No real intro, no real build-up or anything like that, and he disappears just as quickly as he came. I feel like everybody was doing their best on this track, but the way all the vocals and performances were organized and presented, it just feels like a traffic jam. Almost like that Kodak Black song ZZ, but worse. The Quavo and Gucci appearances on this thing are nothing to write home about, even if some of Gucci's ad-libs in the background are pretty animated. Cardi B easily walks away with the best rapped feature on this entire record. Sorry. J Cole. She brings the most energy, the most hilarious bars, and arguably does a better job focusing on the topic of the song than Offset does. Chasing after clout. And unfortunately, Offset doesn't really have anything all that poignant or memorable to say on the topic. The song Red Room, one of the lead singles to this record, is a perfect example of Offset's shortcomings as a solo artist. Because even though he's putting a lot of his own personal story into this record, and he tries to run this track as if it's like an emotional diatribe or a monologue, it's still kind of underwhelming. Not really that strong of a hook or a tune to it. And Offset's delivery from front to back is bland and unmemorable. Doesn't really leave much of an impression at all. And the track just completely ends out of nowhere. And somehow goes on way too Long. I do think the track came a long way, does end things off on a somewhat high note, but the ride up until this point does make it kind of hard to celebrate. I don't know, man. I'm a little torn on this one. It's certainly a listenable album. It is pleasant, has a handful of highlights, only a few tracks that I thought were supremely lackluster. While there are some characteristics that I find very underwhelming, the production is pretty great. Offset does pull together a handful of very good songs. And given the previous two Migo solo albums, it definitely surpassed my expectations. I'm feeling a strong five to a light six on this thing. Transition into the next review. And it is time for a review of the new CU Space Cowboy album, or rather compilation, Songs for the Firing Squad. This is a new comp of tracks from a band that formed around 2016, hailing from San Diego, pulling together tracks they dropped on a debut EP, a split they put out last year, a 2017 single, and more. The material on this thing might not be fresh, 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 but it has mostly flown under the radar for pretty much everybody up until this point, and now the band has the opportunity to release these tracks through Pure Noise Records. A version a and somewhat popular underground rock label hailing from the West Coast that's been platforming everything from emo to metalcore, dropping new records from groups like Senses Fall and Drug Church, as well as counterparts and even a new EP from Less Than Jake less than Jake. But even given the versatility of the label's roster so far, this compilation is not really something that I saw coming. As I thought the style of music this band plays pretty much died out with the 2000s. CU Space Cowboy performs this really fast spastic, abrasive brand of mathematic metalcore that I actually used to dig quite a bit from the likes of Anne Albatross and early albums from The Locust, as well as early records from Daughters. The sound, the trend, the style It never really took on one single shape. You had groups within it that were more metalcore and grindcore influenced. Then you had others that gained a lot more inspiration from things like post-hardcore and noise rock. CU Space Cowboy, though, sits at a crossroads where just about every abrasive style of underground rock prevalent in the 2000s leaves some kind of impact on what they're doing here. There are even shades of Screamo on this thing, which the band hilariously acknowledges with the title of the fourth track, Stop calling us screamo. The 18 minutes this compilation lasts is spread across 13 tracks, which obviously does not leave a whole lot of run time to each song on this record. So the band is hitting listeners with a lot of riffs and breakdowns and grooves and noise and transitions at a very fast pace. Heavy, fierce, gargantuan chugging chords. Some weird, sour, odd, angular guitar passages as well. Blast beat drums, guttural growls, and throat-shredding screams all make up the countless changes across this very short span of time. And even though a lot of the tracks on this thing are limited to one minute and change, the group comes through with some pretty memorable compositions and ideas. Like the raging mosh pit of sour, blazing chords the band blasts through on the intro track here. Or the very tight and kind of danceable post-hardcore drums and guitars at the start of Self-Help's specialist kind of sticky. The kind of sour and off-kilter guitar leads on these songs stop calling a screamo feel almost post-punky. Then there's the powerfully abrasive and freakish noisy guitar chords on the third track of this thing, some parts of which almost give the noisiest and most gruesome bits throughout the Converge discography a run for their money. There's also a kind of demented breakdown toward the end of the track that's absolutely hilarious. This compilation is like a relentless roller coaster of extreme versions of aggression and humor and absurdity. Especially Especially if you read through the lyrics and especially with laughs through the pain song titles like Pep talk from a nihilist Jimmy Buffett doesn't even surf I am a transcontinental railroad, please run a train on me. And one of my favorite tracks on this thing that references a Trailer Park Boys episode, You Don't Understand, The liquor Is Calling The Shots Now, Randy bandy When it comes to this very fast, abrasive, busy, ever evolving and changing brand of very mathy metalcore, I wouldn't say CU Space Cowboy is reinventing the wheel or anything, but it is done incredibly well. The performances on this thing are super tight. The production is very vibrant and heavy and fantastic. I would say going forward, though, why not more versatility? Why not more risks? Why not more layers? Why not more sticky, memorable, melodic bits? Because I do feel like the compilation, even though it is a a bunch of songs pulled from various sources, toward the end of it, it was definitely running thin on new ideas. Even with the very sweet and shouty and refreshing pop-punk transition on the track Fashion Statements, I think the vocals could be doing a bit more to come off a bit more intelligible or even distinct. Still, though, this This is a pretty fantastic collection of tracks that has me looking forward to hearing what this band is going to be doing in the future. It is a very sweet little skull-crushing and fun compilation of very abrasive rock music. I'm feeling a light 7 on this thing. Transition into the next review. And it is time for a review of the new Kankyo Ongaku compilation, a Japanese ambient, environmental, and new age music 1980 to 1990. This is a new compilation out via Light in the Attic Records, a mega varied label out of Seattle that has been releasing albums and singles and comps for years from across the music spectrum, and this latest compilation from them. Uh, sees the catalog expanding into a very interesting direction, just as the title suggests Japanese ambient music from 1980 to 1990. So, why this review? Why Japan? Why this time period? Why this genre of music? Well, I could tell you that experimental composers from the East reacted pretty boldly to the inception of Ambient 1 and expanded on the ideas from that record, not only with new technologies, but also by embracing Japan's own rich history with free form and meditative music. And hearing that history come together with new technology under this burgeoning wave of sonic art, it led to a pretty fertile first decade for this environmental music. Really what's brought me here is this compilation was recommended to me by a viewer and I tried it and it was flames ambient flames. While I don't review a whole lot of new age and ambient music on my channel, I do have somewhat of a hushed love for it. But I I think I'm just kind of picky when it comes to the genre, generally. The mood has to be right and the sounds have to have character. And while stillness and repetition are not necessarily bad things, I don't wanna feel trapped in someone's ocean of uninspired crap. In the past, the godfather of what's been commercially termed as ambient music has likened the style to furniture or background enhancement. And even if this style of music is meant to hang in the background, it's essentially wallpaper. But make no mistake, ambient music is, or at least, should be intended to have some kind of effect on the listener. Even if it is a subtle or a subconscious one. Because background music can be inspiring if it influences your mental state in the right way. And I think that's what this very tight compilation of tracks achieves. There's nothing on the abridged digital version of this compilation that expands past seven minutes. But despite the relative brevity of many of these pieces, they all pretty much come through with some very bold and memorable sound palettes. So bold, I think some of these pieces may actually Hook in newbies to ambient music or even listeners who might consider themselves to be a bit too impatient for this style of music. There are 10 different tracks on this thing from 10 different artists. They all flow together pretty nicely. Whether you're talking about more synthetic pieces on this thing, like Glass Chattering from Yoshio Ojima, the track gives me the sensation of floating in an icy palace and I'm just surrounded by all of these bright rays of light reflecting off frozen sheets of water. Then there are pieces on this thing that feature more live instrumentation, more organic instrumentation, like the song Eardreaming, which definitely lives up to its title. It is completely eorgasmic. The song features this panoramic layout of all of these plucky metallic tones and what sounds like some chimey bells. And all of it's performed in this very loose and intimate and primal circle of pure bliss. Tradition meets the new age on this track with some of the ethereal and bright, gorgeous drony synth tones swelling in the background behind all of this instrumentation. It's just a wonderful marriage of new and old, and sounds totally refreshing despite how old it is at this point. There are other pieces on this thing that are incredibly minimal and pensive, like the opening cut still space from Satoshi Ashikawa, which features these very polite and gentle synth notes popping and swelling at a very loose and a very slow pace. It's progressing so slowly and so loosely that you have to kind of relax and zone out and process it in real time because there's no strong rhythm kind of packing the melodies and the chords into an easy-to-decipher pattern. The old-school synth tones on this track are lovely, and as far as keyboard pieces on this thing go, it is only rivaled by Hiroshi Yoshimura's Blink, which has this wonderfully sad beauty to it, even though the keys on this cut are very soft and very subtle, the emotional impact for me was devastating. Continuing on the minimal side of this album, there is the abridged version of Ishiura, which is this very open and spacious bell piece that at points seems to value silence more than sound. And it also does not take long for the compilation to literally start throwing ocean sounds at listeners. The song Variation 3 for an ambient piece, I wouldn't exactly call it pleasant. The constantly wishing waves on this track have a subtly harsh quality to them, and as the song progresses the synthesizers take on an almost dystopian feel. The constantly wishing waves on this track are maybe a little harsh, and the song is also littered with these almost unpredictable shots of percussion and chimes which prevents the atmosphere of the song from really relaxing or settling down. There's also these kind of distant and dark synth tones that have a a strange chorus effect or a phaser effect on them. They sound like a, an old school conception of postmodern sound. Almost like I'm listening to Vaporwaves, sands, internet culture. The water theme continues on the track Praying for Mother slash Earth, Volume 1 which gives listeners more of a babbling brook experience set against synthesizers that get progressively more and more dystopian as they continue. In a way it kind of reminds me of like a Tim Hecker song or a Boards of Canada track. The song See the Light is one of the few tracks on the abridged version of this compilation that has a truly droney quality to it. It's almost Vangelis-esque with its very hopeful and meandering lead synth melodies playing over these Uh, cycling tones that are very relaxing and almost, like, mind-numbing. Overall, this is a stunningly beautiful collection of old-school ambient music from an era and from a location that clearly has not gotten enough shine up until this point. I think there are maybe a few pieces here that aren't given full justice in their abridged versions. Meanwhile, the song Cieco 3, which I hope I'm pronouncing correctly, is probably the biggest cliffhanger of a song in ambient music compilation will ever hand me. It is just way too amazing to end at the point. Point that it does, but uh, what are you gonna do? I'm really impressed with this collection. It is amazing what Light in the Attic has dug up here, and I am feeling a decent to a strong eight on this thing. <laughs> bad Baby gets too much flack and not enough credit. Look, I've said multiple times before that Bad Baby, cash me outside, Uh, she's reached the very low bar of quality uh, to enter the trap rap game and and do her thing uh, just as well as anybody else does it. However, she's just kind of a meme and her big breakout record wasn't so much a breakout and it was just really underwhelming and there's not really any reason to just kind of listen to her music by itself because she has very low musical appeal and, you know, most people are just kind of tuning into what she's doing to gawk at it. And I'm not really sure what else to give her credit for past that point, because her sound, her style, really hasn't been all that influential. In fact, I would credit more someone like Cray Sean uh, for setting the table for someone like Bad Baby, actually. If anybody isn't getting the credit they deserve, it's it's Cray. And I am going on a bit of a ramble here, a trip into my past, after I got a pretty cool suggestion from somebody in my live stream last night, Uh, saying after watching various videos where I have talked about music that uh, I used to like but now I hate or music from my adolescence that I've always hated, uh, what about music from back in the day that I maybe used to dislike but then slowly grew on me over time? And I think I have a pretty prime example of that uh, that I could share with you guys here. For the most part, a lot of the music that I would end up kind of turning myself onto down the road Uh, that maybe I wouldn't have enjoyed when I was in my adolescence. A lot of that was more uh, as a result of just a lack of familiarity and intimacy with that kind of music, uh, as opposed to just like instantly being repulsed by it when I first heard it. Uh, I can't say that in my older age, I definitely enjoy and appreciate pop music a lot more uh, than I did when I was younger. And I was more of a, uh, I guess, a rockist and just into uh, uh, metal music. But uh one thing that I did do a huge 180 on in my teenage years I can say is uh is is this record right here. Uh Misfits Earth AD which is now currently uh one of my favorite Misfits records and uh I wouldn't even say this is you know uh, limited strictly to this record but around the time that I <laughs> thought this album was awful um I actually disliked uh most punk music. Uh, of course You had your instances of pop punk that got into the mainstream uh, and skate punk as well that I actually did enjoy when I was younger. You know, your Offspring and your Green Day and that sort of thing. Uh, But most blends of hardcore punk uh, when I was younger, I just hated. I thought that it was too fast and that you couldn't really tell what was going on because it was too fast. Uh, A lot of the times, especially in the case of of this particular Misfits album, uh, recording kind of messy kind of smudgy, didn't really see the point of it because uh, around that time, a lot of what I enjoyed about metal music was how clean and crisp and punchy it was, how heavy the riffs were, how badass the attitude was, how macho it was, and that sort of shit. And not to say that the Misfits weren't macho in their own right, they definitely were. Uh, But this was a time where I think what I was looking for in the kind of music that I enjoyed, I just couldn't really get out of the Misfits. You know, I, I didn't really appreciate their spooky, weird, creepy aesthetic. And again, I just thought it was too fast. It was too messy. Why would you play this fast? Why would you play this chaotically? Because your riffs. The 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 distortion, the hard hitting characteristics that I look for in rock music, it's it's not translating for whatever reason. Um, being as young as I was at the time, there was also probably a, a certain level of, of of angst that I was looking for in most of the music that I was listening to. Uh, that uh, you probably don't really get out of a Misfits recording, as a lot of their songs aren't all that. Uh, deep emotionally or introspective or uh, about societal ills or anything like that. Uh, A lot of what they just write songs about is just kind of creepy, weird, uh, B-movie, Halloween-type shit. You know what I mean? Um, Not that I dove all that deeply into their lyrics around the time that I decided I hated their music anyway. Uh, But to listen to something that had such a smudgy and a messy recording, I, I just didn't get the point of it. you know. I didn't see the appeal. And it wouldn't be until far down the road when a friend of mine turned me on to uh, Dead Kennedys, and I also uh, took it upon myself to listen to groups such as Minor Threat, who, yeah, hardcore punk bands, yeah, played with a lot of speed, but uh, the musicianship was pretty high quality. And the recordings on a lot of the records from those groups are fantastic, like really freaking good. And I feel like after getting a clear grasp of what exactly a lot of these groups are doing musically, then I was able to go back uh, and listen to an album like Earth AD and really kind of get something out of it. Also, I think um When I had eventually returned to The Misfits, I ended up listening to a lot of their tracks, uh, not off of Earth AD, from records that are a lot less hardcore in terms of their delivery and their speed, Uh, listening to tunes like uh, Where Eagles Dare that are a lot catchier, a lot hookier. Uh, But now, the speed, the aggression, the ferocity, the chaos of a record like Earth AED, I definitely appreciate a lot more in retrospect. Uh, Again, it did take me a while to eventually come to this conclusion and and truly see the appeal in punk music uh, that wasn't hitting the mainstream and, and playing on the radio and that sort of thing. Around the time when I was younger, metal music just seemed so much more epic and... Dark and brooding and and fantastical to me, you know. It just seemed like it had a, a such a huge uh, shot of aggression to it. And in the case of some groups like Black Sabbath and and Iron Maiden, a lot of imagination to it too. But yeah, there were a lot of totally quality releases across the punk spectrum that I was completely writing off simply because I just didn't see the appeal in it at the time. And thankfully I had that come to Jesus moment (laughs) where I realized how great punk music was because a lot of the ethos of punk has influenced how I uh, view music from really top to bottom still to this day. Not just in terms of the literal musical compositional qualities of it but also its aesthetic qualities, its authenticity, its delivery method. It also led me to understand that Uh, Not just rock music, but various shades of popular music have these really compelling, intriguing, experimental, adventurous uh, versions of what's exposed in the mainstream hanging around in the underground waiting for uh, passionate fans to sort of look under a rock and discover it. It is a really great, ferocious, hardcore punk LP with some great tracks on it. I highly recommend uh, uh, Queen Wasp, also Green Hell and uh, demon mania over here next to my head is another video that you can check out hit that up or the link to subscribe to the channel and if you guys want head down into the comments and uh, let me know what music you may have hated as an adolescent and then kind of grew to appreciate and enjoy when you grew later into your teenage years or your 20s adulthood so on and so forth anthony fantano punk music forever (laughs) And that is it for this episode of the Needle Drop Podcast. Thank you for listening, everybody. Make sure whatever platform you are hearing us on, you are subscribing, you are rating, you are writing us a review, you're saying something nice and complimentary, helps us out, helps out the show. Would appreciate it greatly. Shout out to Jonah for assembling this episode just as he does every episode of the podcast and make sure to follow us on social media at the needle drop on twitter a fantano on instagram youtube.com slash fantano youtube.com slash the needle drop and the needle drop.com to not miss a single segment or update that we drop throughout the week all right we will see you guys in the next episode anthony fantano the needle drop podcast forever